You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Well, we are back in the Gospel of Mark. We just got back into it last week, and it's, it's summertime, so I know some people are in and some people are out, and some of you are new and you didn't even know that we were doing the Gospel of Mark, and so we are back in it after spending a good chunk of time last year already. And the idea with Mark was that we as a church would just slowly take our time and look at the Gospel kind of story by story. And throughout that time, the hope was that we would see a few themes regularly coming up. One was that we would see that Jesus is the king. So Jesus is not just a person. He's not just a famous person that a lot of people know. He's not just someone who died on a cross that all kinds of people wear around their necks or on their ears. He is the king, creator, majesty over all the universe. And so that is a big deal. If we believe that's the case, and as we look at his life, story by story, if we see that that is the truth, then that should shape our lives. We also wanted to see that disciples, as we see the word often coming up in the Gospels, are men and women who are going to follow this king. They're going to follow Jesus. Their lives are going to be shaped by him, by his teachings, by the things that he does. And so we wanted to take a slow look at his life and see, okay, what does it look like for a disciple to follow Jesus, the king. And then finally, we wanted to see this theme of, okay, if Jesus is the king, and if we are called to follow him, then how do we now live out his mission as his people? How do we build the kingdom and the church around Elmira or in whatever town you're coming from? How do we actually see that happening around us? And so we have been taking a slow look at it. And the, the image itself, I remember I said this last year, the image itself for Mark is kind of this, this slow dripping kind of uh, image, right? It's just like a slow perk. If you're making a coffee and you're pouring your coffee over the grounds, it's slowly going through so you get all of it, all the richness of it. That's what we're trying to do here in Mark, and I hope that we are hitting it at least to some degree. If you have a Bible or if you have a phone with the Bible app, please turn to Mark chapter 11. And we want to look at the story today that Micah just read to us. And it's one of those stories that it's kind of in this clump of passages that almost looks like Jesus is in a bad mood or something, or Jesus is like ticked off, okay? In Mark chapters 11 through about 11, uh, through 13, through these chapters that we're going to look at over the next week here, Jesus is talking straight. He is going straight to the heart of the religious world for the Jewish people. And so he is going to Jerusalem and specifically spending time around the temple. And he is addressing and talking straight to the religious leaders. He is going to the places and to the hearts that are maybe the most difficult to reach. And that is religious people. Now, when I say religious people, many of us think that that's not us. We're thinking 
Firstly, that that is another category. That's like somebody else. We come to church every week, but we're not like in that religious group category. And the reason why we feel that way is because, honestly, like, all of us feel to some degree that we are making pretty good choices in life. Unless like it comes and like slaps us in the face, like we're going to see in the passage here today. We feel like we've chosen like a wise way, and so here we are, we're following Jesus, we're doing the right thing. And C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, he writes this about the idea of everyone being religious in a sense. He says this, The truth is, We believe in decency so much. We feel the rule of law pressing on us so that we cannot bear to face the fact that we are breaking it. And consequently, we try to shift responsibility. Lewis is saying, listen, no matter where we're coming from, no matter whether we grew up going to church every Sunday, every Sunday night, every Wednesday, or maybe we've only come in here the first time, or maybe we never go to church. Lewis is saying, we all believe that there is a right way to live life and that most other people are not living that right way. And then even at times, Lewis is saying here, we even don't live that way. We don't even follow our own law. And so what Lewis is trying to help us to kind of grasp in mere Christianity is that We're all, to some degree, religious. So that means the passage that we're coming to here in Mark, though it's directly spoken to the religious leaders, also is filled with principles for us as human beings, as religious people. In the book of Romans, where Paul takes probably the the greatest amount of time to explain the gospel, he spends the first three chapters of that book explaining what it means to be under sin. He says you are born in sin. Every single one of us is born in sin. And throughout our lives, we continue to do wrong. Whether we are, Paul says, um, in the category of not knowing any formalized God at all or the God of the Bible at all, or he says all the way into chapters two and three, you know God, you know his laws, you can quote the scripture, Paul says, every single one of us, we just, we break it constantly. We just continually make mistakes. Whether it's one little thought, which I presume that most of us have done more than that, okay? But one little thought that is like off, or maybe like a million thoughts that are off. Paul says, it doesn't really matter. When you're dealing with a perfect God that is completely holy, untainted by sin, then any breaking of any law puts us in this category of under what Paul says in Romans is the wrath of God. In our passage today, and we'll get to this, but let me read verse 9 from chapter 12. Jesus says this. This is the words of Jesus as he's kind of explaining the parable and coming to its conclusion. He says, What will the owner of the vineyard do? And this is the owner of the vineyard as God we'll see in a minute. He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus is saying, this is what's coming for those who reject the Messiah. Revelation makes it even clearer in the book of Revelation, which is this prophetic uh, telling of the end of time and all that God is going to bring together. The apostle John writes this in Revelation 20. This is right at the end of the book. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, 
from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And I'll skip down then to verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Whoa. That's, that's the bad news that is in the scriptures that Jesus is referencing. The Jesus that like we love, the Jesus that we just want to be with, and the Jesus that people who aren't even Christians would be like, that guy's pretty good. I think I want to spend some time with him. That's Jesus. This is Jesus who is bringing this out. But let me tell you, the bad news is in Scripture. Scripture does not kind of like play around with truth itself. But the Scriptures are filled with even more good news. And even in a text like we're looking at today, which when you read it on just on first hand, if you just sit down and read it, you're like, oh man, I'm, I'm kind of confronted with this image again of casting off. And I don't know what to do with that. I'm wrestling with that. Even in that story, the grace of God should just like shine a light on it. The grace of God should be the thing that humbles us in his presence and is something that we should see over and over again. Because throughout the scriptures, whether it's from the first page or right to Revelation 20, which we read, the last page, the grace of God is threaded, it's woven into the story. So that when you pause and you look and you see what God is doing, you see this gracious God in love reaching out to us regularly through all kinds of different means and different ways. So how did we get to chapter 12, verse 9? Well, let's start in chapter 11 to take a look at that. In chapter 11, we just read this, but we're going to read it again. Starting in verse 27, here is Jesus going into Jerusalem. It says this, And they came again to Jerusalem, that's him and his disciples, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they were held, for they held that John really was a prophet. And so they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So here's Jesus going to the temple, right? Going straight to the center of the religious system. And he is confronted by or comes to the leaders, the religious leaders, which are the, the Sanhedrin, right? Which was a mix of the Pharisees and the scribes and the, the Sadducees. They were this group of religious leaders, kind of like if you, I don't know if you work for like a large company or something, you might have a executive team or a CEO and a board of directors. Maybe if the company's so big enough, you don't even meet them, right? You never even see them. They're just like making decisions about the company. They're acquiring this or they're selling that. 
that is what this Sanhedrin was. These were the guys that were making all the decisions around the religious life and system, and they were holding the line. And honestly, their job was to make sure that false teaching and other like, leaders wouldn't come in and taint what they were doing. So they come to Jesus here, and they're asking him a question because partially that's their job to do it. But what do they ask Jesus? They say, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority? They remember what Jesus had just done, right? We talked about it last week. If you were in missional families, you would have read the passage where Jesus is cleansing the temple. He's flipping the tables in the Gentiles' court. So they're like, that's fresh in their mind, kind of burned in their memory of what Jesus had done. But even more than that, fresh in their mind is hearing stories or maybe even seeing Jesus out in the hills doing teaching, Jesus out healing people, Jesus out doing miracles. And and they're coming now and saying, okay, Jesus, by whose authority are you doing this? And so Jesus, like a good rabbi, he responds back to them with a question, essentially saying, what did John's baptism mean? This John the Baptist, going all the way back to Mark chapter 1, the the first sermon that we talked about, introduced John the Baptist, who would make the way clear for the Messiah. And and people are coming to John's teaching, and they're being baptized by John, and John marks Jesus as the one. And so Jesus here now says, okay, you want to know what authority I have? You want to know why I'm here speaking and why God is affirming the works that I'm doing? What do you think about John the Baptist and his teaching? And what does it say they do? Look in verse 31. It says they discussed it with one another. Now that word is really interesting, that word discussed. It's actually a word that's used seven times in Mark's gospel. And every time it's used, it is used in a way that the people can evade the truth that Jesus is actually bringing to them. So this idea of discussing is not like a group of people who are like, let's get down to the bottom of the truth here. It's actually people who have made up their minds about Jesus. They're not even in a, in a place of openness to kind of truly think about what he's doing or, or all that he's been saying or doing. They're actually, their minds are made up. And now all they're trying to do is, and we can see we just read those verses, they're they're just trying to figure out how can we do this best in a way that saves face because we're afraid of what the people think. And so rather than actually thinking about what Jesus is doing, they choose to pass on him. And there's a principle there for us to kind of think about and hold on to. This idea of passing on Jesus You know, we are given opportunities to think about Christ, think about Jesus. We have his word that reveals his life to us and reveals the truth of who he is. And we come on Sunday mornings and we listen to this teaching and we read the scripture as it's read. Maybe if we're a part of a missional family, we gather together and we think about scripture. And then throughout the week, there's our opportunity to actually come nearer to him. But what happens to many of us, myself included, is the busyness of life creeps in. 
or a new episode of whatever comes up, right? Or a new podcast comes out or whatever it is, something else kind of distracts us. And there we are again with a, a moment before us, an opportunity to walk closer to Christ and the opportunity is missed. Indecision actually becomes a decision. Indifference actually leads us away from Christ. And so very, very quickly, we can look at the religious leaders in the text here and we're like, man, Jesus is like right there in front of you. All you have to do is like stay there. Keep asking him. Keep talking to him. I've often thought like it can't get much easier, right? It's not even like it's a book then. It's like Jesus is right there. But doesn't the same happen to us? Like how much easier can it be? He's here, revealed to us through the scriptures. He's here in our midst, in each of our lives. As we put our trust in him, his spirit comes into us. And yet within those moments, we become like the Pharisees and we discuss. And our discussing is really just a front for we're walking away from Jesus rather than doing what we should be doing, which is walking to him. Not because we have all the answers, but because we're looking for the answers. And we find truth in him. So very quickly, looking at this text, the, the mirror is shone actually on us. And we begin to see, or I hope you're beginning to see, that the habits of our lives are very similar to the habits of the things that the religious leaders were facing there. The opportunity stands before us to walk towards Christ. And Jesus then, in order to help the Pharisees, tells them a story. Now in Mark's gospel, um, you can look throughout the gospel and you'll see that it's not filled with like a ton of parables. Matthew's gospel, Luke's gospel, the other gospels are full of parables, and you can read them and study them. In Mark's gospel, there's very few there, but here's one. And so this means that Mark is like, Mark is putting this in here intentionally because he's saying this is really important. So he's like, I'm going to include this in the narrative because Jesus told this, and it's really important to us understanding who Jesus is. So he comes and tries to give clarity to the Sanhedrin, to the religious leaders about what, by what authority. Remember, that's the question that he's trying to help them to see. By what authority is he able to do these things? So look at chapter 12, verse 1. It says, And he began to speak to them in, a, in parables. And the parable goes this way. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the winepress, and built a tower, and leased it to the tenants, and went into another country. So this is not just like a, a fictional story. This isn't just like long, long ago there were, you know, dragons living in the land. This is like a, a real thing that's going on in that time, okay? People were doing the very thing. They were moving to different locations, and they had pieces of land that they were renting out to tenants to take care of. Kind of like if you know someone or maybe you are someone who has like a cottage and you're Airbnb-ing it to someone. That's kind of how the story would land to the listeners. 
real, true life story that they would have known was going on in the world around them. And so Jesus is telling this story to, to kind of grab their attention, okay? So he says, this is the story that I'm going to tell you about a landowner. Now look at verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruits of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, to, and, and him they killed. And so many others, some they beat and some they killed. Verse 6 says this, He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? So, remember, this is a real-life story. People are listening there. Probably the next thing on their lips is the very thing that Jesus is saying, right? They're like, okay, one plus one is you destroy the tenants, right? Like, that's how it works. You don't just, you don't just keep going. You've sent all these people. And so look at verse 8. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to the others. So Jesus here is telling a parable to, to actually help the religious leaders make sense of what is going on around them. In essence, in this story, he tells the story of redemption, the story of the nation of Israel, even broader than that, the story of what God has been doing from the beginning. We see in the story that God is actually the owner of the vineyard, okay? And God is the one who's carefully preparing this thing. You can see the, the language of care and the, the language of like making this a beautiful place so that people can flourish in this vineyard. And God sends representatives, his people, to take care of it and to see it bear fruit. And that doesn't happen. And so he sends representative after representative, which is the Old Testament prophets and messengers from, from God himself to kind of win them back. And all along the way, they destroy, they reject. And then finally in the story, he says he'll send his beloved son, the son of God. He would send him. And they also reject his son, and the owner comes to destroy them. Now, listen, there are times when Jesus tells parables when people are totally confused. Like, they're like, we don't know what you're talking about, and Jesus is like, that's okay. And there's other times even where the disciples are like, okay, Jesus, what was that about, man? We don't get any of that. And so Jesus sometimes explains it. Sometimes he leaves them in mystery. This is not the case in this parable. In this parable, as clear as I just kind of explained it, and you kind of get the sense of the historical narrative of what Jesus is trying to tell in this parable, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes are like, we have total clarity what this is about. Look at verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They knew exactly what this was about. 
They knew exactly that Jesus was talking about them directly. There's no mystery with this one. And Jesus is trying to, in a sense, splash their face with cold water. Have you ever done that in the morning when you're trying to wake yourself up? You know, you go to the sink, cold water, straight cold water. Don't mix it with warm, right? Straight cold water, splash in the face. That's what Jesus is trying to do here. He is trying to wake them up. He's trying to get them to see something. Something that historically the other religious leaders had not seen. Jesus is coming to them again and basically giving them a cheat sheet on what the future is going to look like. And he's saying, this is what's happening. He's coming to them to try to open their eyes to what it means. But what we see is what, what the scriptures call hardened hearts. People who, when they're confronted with the truth, are cold to it. Either, and, and usually it's on some sort of a scale, right? Getting colder to it, or pretty hard to it, or maybe softening up to it. But the truth, when it comes to them, is hitting hardness. And that's the case, again, with most of us. There are aspects of our lives where when the truth comes up against it, it hits hardness. And that's probably even hard for most of us to like hear that. That's the hardness, right? That when, you, when we hear that, that actually there are things in our lives, there are things in my life that I'm stubborn toward, God's, toward God in. That when I hear them come to my heart, they are landing on hard soil. Robert Mulholland in his book on spiritual formation or, um, you know, the disciplines of the faith or sanctification, whatever title you put under that, this idea of our hearts slowly being formed into the image of Christ, he says this, If indeed the work of God's formation in us is the process of forming us in the image of Christ, which is what it is, okay? We are, we are saved and then in life, we are forming into the image of Christ. Slowly, Christ is having more space in our hearts and in our lives. He says, obviously, this is going to take place in the points where we are not yet formed in that image. So those are the things that we are going to run up against God in. He says, this means that one of the first dynamics of holistic spiritual formation will be confrontation. That's what's going to happen. Confrontation. When truth is revealed to us, when we read the scriptures, when we hear teaching, when we're talking to fellow believers, and in those moments, the Holy Spirit comes and speaks something to us, to an area of hardness in our lives, that's going to be a moment of confrontation. And Mulholland says, that is actually the place where God needs to do some work in our lives. It's not the places where we've kind of got it together where we're like, we understand the grace of God. We're slowly growing in this area. God is doing something. There is like a softness to it. Mulholland is saying, when truth comes and hits the hard soil of our heart, those are the places where God still has to do some work. And those are the places where we are just like these Pharisees, where we are just like these religious people. But the beauty is, 
God's grace is powerful. I don't know about you, but if this was me in this story, I would probably be like Martin Luther. I found this quote this week. Martin Luther said this, If I were God and the world had treated me as I treated Jesus, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. Okay? That would probably be me. I'd be like, you know what? These people, they don't get it. After all these thousands of years, after all these hundreds of years, all these stories, all this witness, I'm done. I'm kicking the can down the lane. I'm going to restart, reboot, right? Hit the power button on the computer, reboot. I'm thankful that Jesus is not like Martin Luther and he's not like me. Jesus is gracious. His grace just keeps coming again and again. It just keeps pouring out. And so here, even in the telling of this story, even in the revealing of this is what I'm doing, Jesus has a spirit of grace about him. Even in the speaking of truth, he has grace. He's giving them more time to kind of ponder what is God doing on this scene. And then Jesus says this in verses 10 and 11. He says, have you not read this? Quoting from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He uses the Old Testament scriptures to say, listen, this is what's actually happening. God is doing something around you that you didn't expect, that you didn't realize. Last month, I was in Austria, and we were looking at all these old church buildings, like these churches that were from like, 300 years ago, 400 years ago, and most of them had this giant cornerstone, like a big boulder that was the starting point of the construction, and it was, it was like sticking out even so that you could see this was it. And um, the people that we were with, actually, they said, you should take a picture of that because you're probably going to need that for a sermon sometime. And I didn't realize that. And I was like, yeah, maybe, but I didn't take a picture. But, you know, this was the first sermon coming up. But that was the idea, the cornerstone. And so Jesus actually pulls out this imagery as he's standing in the courtyard of the temple. And if you've ever seen like a drawing of what Herod's temple looked like, this massive structure, gleaming white, filled with gold and marble and all kinds of stones. And in this huge courtyard and massive construction like just millions and millions of blocks of stone and Jesus says listen in this construction this system that you think is so important when it was built there was a stone that the masons cut in the quarry and was just sitting there and everybody was picking all these other stones to build this beautiful construction and this stone was just sitting there off on the side and when it came time most likely he was talking about the portico as well, this giant porch setting. When it came time to build the foundation for that, the builders actually came to that one stone that was sitting there rejected that nobody thought they were going to use. Nobody thought it was going to be important. No one thought this is the thing that we are going to build this whole temple off of. That was the very stone that was chosen. And the reason why Jesus tells them that is because he's in grace and love, trying to draw them in again, to get them to think that maybe in this beautiful setting of this temple that God is actually doing something. And maybe even the one who they would least expect to be the Messiah, Jesus himself, would be the very one who God would pick. 
the grace of Jesus to come to them and to, to bring them in, to once again tell them and to teach them and to, to try his best to open their eyes. And we know that many of them rejected him. They're just like, my mind is made up. It's done. But there's also some of the, you think of Joseph, you think of Nicodemus who actually show up at Jesus' death and help to put him in the tomb. They're religious leaders. You think of the Apostle Paul whose heart was changed. These Pharisees were actually brought into God's kingdom. The impossible happened. So for us today, when we run into hard hearts, what do we do? Just quickly to close with this. If it's our own heart that's hard, okay, and you know there's some softening happened if you can even just admit that, that our own hearts are hard. Our calling is to do the opposite of what the Pharisees did. It's to go towards Jesus, to pursue him, to see his life in the scriptures, to read and to discover and ask the Spirit to show us who Jesus is. If you are living with someone, a, a friend, a family member, a coworker, a roommate who you see hardness of heart in their lives, let me just recommend three things. One is keep living the story of Jesus out before them. Show them what it looks like to be convinced that Jesus is the king. Show them the grace that you have experienced. Be that living example of someone who has been humbled by the grace of God. But secondly, tell them, be courageous to continue to tell them about the grace of God. Look for windows, for opportunities where questions are coming up. It may be in the joy of their life or maybe in the sorrow of their life, but in those moments, be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. And finally, be patient. God is the one who saves. God is the one who's working. God is the one who somehow chooses to use us in this process, and he is working out his purposes. Be patient with God. In this story, we have two hearts on display for us, and one is a heart of stone that is hidden for the most part, Occasionally it's revealed, we can see it coming out in the text, but it is a hardness toward God. And the other one is a heart of compassion, which we see in Christ, which ends up being the cornerstone. And this is actually what God is doing to build his church around the world. He is the cornerstone who comes to crush and defeat sin and Satan and to give us life everlasting. If you have your bread, your wafer, and your cup. I just ask you to take that out now. And we want to just take a few moments here to think about what Christ has done for us by eating the bread and drinking the cup. And let me read these verses out of Matthew chapter 26 that remind us of the night before Christ was to go to the cross. And he said this, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, 
For this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now listen to verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day. And when I drink it, I will, when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There is a note of hope that Christ has come to defeat sin, to defeat death, and also to this future hope where we are in his presence with him, untainted by sin. Sin then is crushed by the cornerstone, who is Jesus. Lord, we thank you for the bread, and we thank you for this cup. We thank you for your grace, which is just poured out for us. And Lord, in the, in the story here, we see again and again, you coming with truth to those who have hard hearts, Lord. And Lord, you defeated sin and you defeated death to, to break those hard hearts and to humble each and every one of us. And so, Lord, today we admit in our own hardness of heart and, Lord, we confess that we need softening in places. And so, Lord, would you do that miracle that only you can do? And we thank you for the work that you're doing in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.